0: it's a good idea to use this contemplation once a day in your own way without being guided into it if you can't remember the words Gudrun has um, I think they are hanging down there where she has the books you don't have to contemplate all four you can pick one you can pick the enmity, the hurtfulness protecting one's own happiness Uh, whichever one troubles of mind and body you can pick one of them you can pick two you can use all four and also, after you've done that contemplation for yourself always think of other people wishing them the same happiness that comes when you have seen how to let go of the unpleasant aspects always think that you want to also have others be equally happy You can use this contemplation in your individual meditation time. You can spend as much or as little time as you like on it. It's entirely up to you. But contemplation goes hand in hand with meditation. It is a very essential aspect of the meditative path because it does show us things which we don't usually want to look at or think we have no time to look at or don't make the time would be better and here we have the time and here we have also the guidance of the Buddha's words so it's an excellent opportunity having learned it in a meditation course it's very common that one can continue to do that outside of the courses too as I said the mind is habit prone it will do this habitually and we don't need any special occasions to contemplate enmity and hurtfulness they come up in everyday life and there they are and if we have some key words to help us like letting go or don't blame the trigger we have these key words we know Uh here's something to do and when we do find that in ourselves it's an occasion for joy when we find any of these things within we can be happy To have found it. Because if we don't find it, we can never get rid of it. And very often we do think we haven't got it. It's the other people that's got it. Not us. But that doesn't help us. So it's really a wonderful opportunity to see more clearly the word vipassana means seeing clearly inside literally translated seeing clearly on this path of purification we have heart and mind and we'll first talk about the purification of the heart and then and on another occasion, we'll talk about the purification of mind. Now, we have already broached the subject of the purification of the heart through this contemplation, but we'll get it a little more exact by finding out what the Buddha had to say about it. He said that there are only four emotions which are worth having and they're called the Brahma Viharas now Brahmas are the gods and the Viharas are the abodes so they are the heavenly abodes literally translated it doesn't mean that we have to go to heaven it also doesn't mean that we have to have any kind of godlike figure. What it means is that when we practice those four supreme emotions, then we will find that it's heavenly within ourselves. It's a different proposition. from the ordinary everyday, Worldly kind of feeling, which we all know. In the ordinary, everyday, worldly kind of feeling, we are dependent upon our sense contacts. We want to see and hear, taste, touch, smell, and think something pleasant. And when we do, we feel all right, but for how long? And then that sense contact is gone, and we need a new one. Because all of mankind lives in that way, everybody is anxious and overly busy. Overly busy trying to find the sense-contact which they think is going to make them happy. And there's no gain saying the fact that it will for a very short time. The Buddha called it the lowest grade of happiness. He did not deny the fact that there are sense contacts which make us happy. There would be foolishness. He was the most pragmatic of teachers. But, he said, it's the lowest grade. Not only because we have to constantly search for it outside for ourselves, but also because of the dependency we have. And because of the fact that the sense contacts are so short-lived, they are prone to change because of necessity. We can't keep looking at the same thing we can't keep hearing the same thing we can't eat constantly Hold a horrible thought we can't ever think the same thing constantly they're not capable of that so there's no way we can embed that happiness within ourselves without having to search for a new outer impact now I think it is quite clear that happiness is something within ourselves But most people who don't practice a spiritual path never think of it that happiness lies within, embedded within our own purity and doesn't need any sense contact. In fact, sense contacts are troublesome. Just think of meditation for a moment meditation and you hear noises well that's disturbing you look at something that's disturbing should you be eating or smelling or getting bothered by touch contact all that's disturbing and worst of all thinking certainly disturbing these are our sense contacts Now, meditation leads to inner calm and peace and all those sense contacts are contrary to it which doesn't mean that we won't have any sense contacts when we are treading a spiritual path On the contrary, we will have them But having understood how very fleeting they are they aren't going to be Priorities. they are just going to be happenings and another thing which is going to happen is that we'll be grateful for those that are pleasing very often people take them for granted and only get irate if they get unpleasant ones as if there had been a guarantee at our birth, that we're only going to have pleasant sense contacts. Nobody has that guarantee. Now, some people, we say, are very lucky. They have more pleasant sense contacts than others. It's not really lucky. They're having good karma. We'll talk about karma at another time. We can say lucky if we like. But for most people, we could say, as a generality, that it's 50-50. 50 pleasant, 50 unpleasant. And that's doing quite well. If it doesn't tip the scale downward, we're doing all right. If it doesn't go the other way, and we get 60 unpleasant and 40 pleasant. So that is something also that we can contemplate that we can investigate how dependent am I on my sense contacts for my happiness and can I depend on them or do they produce anxiety the anxiety first of all of loss and the anxiety of not being able to repeat them the repetition of our sense contacts is something that creates also difficulties because what we found pleasing one time will not be so pleasing the next time and we need to enlarge its scope which happens to people who can indulge in anything and haven't realized that their sense contacts are not going to make them truly happy and when they can indulge in anything in the end there is either totally fed up with whatever it is they were looking for or they realize there must be something else when we realize there must be something else the Buddha called these four supreme emotions the second stage of happiness. Altogether, there are four, four stages. This is the second one. With the first one, he kept advising to calm the senses, not to make them a very um, important aspect, to be grateful when the good things happen to us to realize that it's due to our good karma and not to depend on them and rather put our attention on the second aspect of happiness namely the supreme emotions the supreme emotions are four we usually call them loving kindness, compassion joy with others and equanimity we'll talk about the first one first loving kindness is the kind of love which we might call pure it is something which is very rare amongst people the reason for that is that we haven't actually learned about it we haven't heard about it it's an unknown quantity (coughs) we have any number of institutions in any country that teach us to use our mind there are no institutions anywhere that teach us how to use our heart so we have to learn it by ourselves. It's learnable. There's no question about it. But we do need the Buddhist guidance. We need some guidance, most people. There are some notable exceptions, but they are exceptions. The ordinary person needs to be shown a way to do that. Well, the first thing, of course, is that loving-kindness meditation which we did last night and which we'll be doing every night in a different way with different symbolism and out of which you can pick the one you like best or make up one yourself. These are only suggestions. You can do what you like. But there's one thing which I'd like to emphasize. Start every meditation and also every contemplation. With loving kindness for yourself. In whichever way you like to do it. Now we did a best friend last night. We'll do a different one every night. Whatever way you like to do it. But always start like that with your meditation. Don't forget. It's very easily forgotten. And very often when I question people. Have you remembered? They haven't. So. Put it in the computer, and so that you can always get at it. Loving kindness for myself, I'm my own best friend. That's of course only one part of the whole um, practice. The reason people have difficulty, or even are not even acquainted with what it means to love in purity is a fact that we want to be loved. Soon as you want to get something it's no longer pure. And people want to be loved they want to find somebody that's going to love them. And then we kindly consent to love them too. And then very often we examine that we don't do it any more than the other one. Sort of put it on a scale as if one could do that and get pretty upset if we think that we are the ones that are loving more than the other ones. <laughs> Which may not even be true. The other one may not be quite as verbal as we are or may not be able to show it so well. But it's totally immaterial, It has really nothing to do with the purity of our emotions. In fact, it is beset with anxiety because we think that we are dependent upon one or two or three other people in order to be able to love, which is absurd. There are six billion people on this planet and we pick one, two or three and then if we don't have those, we can't love. It's an utter absurdity and yet nobody thinks of it. There's a totally different aspect embedded in our hearts. There is the quality and the ability to love in everyone and we have probably all experienced it we've probably all experienced being able to love someone but what we've also experienced at that time is wanting to have that person around wanting to be loved by that person wanting to have equality of love wanting to make sure that that person doesn't get lost and all of that produces fear because we know very well that people change their minds and their hearts that people get lost because they die that we may not be there where they are we know all these things we try to hide from them or we allow ourselves to be anxious and fearful when we allow ourselves to be anxious and fearful, our whole inner mood, our whole inner being is anxious and fearful. And it's much more difficult to be peaceful and joyous. And we're anxious and fearful because we realize that that's what we need in order, or we think we need, in order to express our heart quality of love can be lost any moment they're dependent upon an outer condition depend upon usually another person people can die any moment every mother of small children knows that very very apparent and strong anxiety loves her children dearly but is totally anxious that they stay alive don't get sick do well pass all the exams and uh, come to no harm and it's a constant fear and what they miss is the joy of pure love they totally miss out on it it appears once in a while and they Of course, think at that time. It's due to the outer condition which has arisen. One of the kids has done especially well. So, it's wonderful for one day. And then the same anxiety again. But it's not only with kids, it's with partners, with everyone, that we think we need in order to love. We don't need anybody in order to love we are able to love. And only then, when we realize that we are able to love and practice that, then we lose that fear and anxiety. As long as we have that fear and anxiety, we're clinging. We're hanging on. And clinging is the opposite of letting go. So it's entirely opposed to our spiritual well-being. It's opposed to our spiritual growth. It's exactly that which keeps us bound in fetters. The Buddha was married before he became the Buddha and had a little son. And when the little son was born, he called him Rahula. And Rahula means the fetter. He knew very well What that meant to have a little son. He went and found the answer and then passed that on to his family. And it is said that Rahula also became enlightened when he was uh, more grown up. We are fettered by our wish to get something and to keep it. There is no way we can keep anything. It's impossible. At least on our deathbed, it's all going to go. But usually it goes before that. And most people have had occasions to find that that which they wanted to keep disappeared, particularly persons. The fear which arises the fear of loss, is very often not conscious. We are subconsciously afraid. If we recognize it, then we can also recognize that fear is part of hate. doesn't mean we hate that person. Not at all. It just means we hate the idea of the possibility of loss so the love is extremely impure because it's beset with the opposite it doesn't have that pure heart quality that it could have which would make us ourselves happy and peaceful i think everybody knows that situation where even with old established habits there is still this kind of emotional dependence we are dependent upon the emotion of others their approval we are dependent upon their finding us acceptable and very often what we do is to create a situation within ourselves just in order to be acceptable that's extremely unpleasant it's more than unpleasant it blocks all spiritual development because it makes us appear to be what we don't really want to be So there's a real dichotomy there within our feelings and all because we want to be loved now sometimes people would like to have somebody love them and they can't find anybody and they think that's tragic or they had somebody and lost that person and then all of a sudden they think they're no longer lovable which is absurd just because one person changed his or her mind It doesn't mean that one's no longer lovable. One is just as lovable as one has been before, or unlovable. No no difference at all. So, there's a remedy for all that. And it's so simple that one wonders why the whole world doesn't know it anyway. But, the simplest things are very often those that escape us. Because, the Buddha said, we have convoluted minds. We think in circles. And these circles are created by us for an ego support system. We want to have a support for the fact that we are really someone, whatever it is we'd like to be. Maybe we'd like to be considered beautiful, attractive, handsome, Clever, intelligent whatever it may be what we like to be considered as and we're looking for that support system and because of that support system that we're looking for our minds go around in circles how can we find it once we give up let go to try to find that support system it'll be much easier to find the remedy the remedy is instead of looking searching hoping to be loved is to love it's so simple it's almost ludicrous to love ourselves and that is a practice that is a way of working with our emotions for which we need no special (coughs) time, special course. We need to hear hear about it. Most people need to hear about it. But we don't need anything special. Every person that comes within our orbit that we confront is a field of practice. In Pali, a field of practice is kamatana. And usually we call kamatana the meditation subject so we can look at each person as our meditation subject for loving kindness meditation it doesn't matter who it is anyone in essence we're all alike and to pick and choose those whom we care to love or care for and those we don't makes life far more complicated than it needs to be but we need to learn that so what we can do is we can start practicing here lots of people around and uh, even though we don't talk to them they have already made up our minds what they're like (laughs) we know exactly which ones we like and which ones we don't (laughs) so we can start loving them regardless regardless whether they move around in their meditation or whether they cough or whether they uh, eat too much or too little it's totally immaterial we can start working on that it's um, a meditation and it's one which purifies the heart and purifies it to the extent that our other meditations calm and insight are so much easier any kind of resistance any rejection anything at all whatever it may be and maybe we think it's so justified all of that is disturbing we have no justifications for negativity none whatsoever that doesn't mean we can't discriminate between good and bad of course we can if we can't discriminate between good and bad we wouldn't know how to act and to behave but we don't have any justification for rejection usually we say to that we don't approve of the crime but we can still love the criminal it's work in our work because there's an instinctive and impulsive reaction to other people whatever it may be sometimes these are actually karmic resultants of former lives which we don't have to go into because we can't figure it out anyway so it doesn't pay to get into that it's a waste of time the only thing to do is to love now and if we find it difficult to do that we realize then that it's very important that we do practice it if we find it easy we need to have some tests and then we'll know if somebody blames us doesn't approve of what we're doing isn't supportive are we still loving or is there something within us which rejects that person which rejects maybe the whole situation. Our reactions become negative. Sometimes it's quite easy to love certain people, especially little kids, small ones. They're cute. We can love them. We can love somebody who's very kind and polite. But how about that person that is none of those things. Are we then making differences? It helps to know, and this is the next one of those supreme emotions, and we'll talk about that at another time. It helps to know that there isn't a single person alive that doesn't have dukkha, that doesn't have some troubles of mind or body even if they're smiling cracking jokes looking fine they've still got it existence is dukkha and why? because everybody wants something and whatever it is produces anxiety so that also helps to keep that in mind helps to deal with the person which is not supportive, which is blaming one, which is creating a situation in which we don't feel comfortable, we can realize that that person is doing that because they don't feel comfortable. If we respond with impersonal love, we respond with unconditional love, we don't make a condition, that they're nice, that they're lovable. We don't make a condition that that person is the one we can love, but it's totally impersonal and unconditional. The whole situation may change, and probably does. It changes because there is love now outside in our surroundings. It has come from our own heart. And within that atmosphere of love, it's much easier for the other person also to be at least pleasant, if not loving. So the teaching of the Buddha teaches, actually, this one thing, don't look to be loved, you do the loving each of these qualities has a far enemy and of course the far enemy of love is hate there's no question about it, it's easy to see but the near enemy of love is affection it's that which I have described the clinging to one or a few people who are supposed to return one's love To look for the return of one's love is about the most anxiety-producing emotion we can have because it's constant. Now, if we are in a life-threatening situation, that's also anxiety-producing, but it usually doesn't stay that way. It changes, so it's not that long-lasting. But to look for the other person's love is something that continues. And the only thing we can do is to recognize that love is a quality of the heart. It's a quality of the heart. It's not a relationship. And as long as we know that, then we will be interested certainly to have that quality of the heart grow within us how do we make something grow we give it care we watch it we are careful about it if we have a very tiny plant very tender and uh, fragile. We can't put it into the storm, and we do have to water it, and we have to watch out for it, and make sure that it has the best possible conditions. Depends how tiny our plant of love is. We need to give it the best possible inner conditions, which means remembering over and over again and practicing with everybody it won't always work it needn't and it shouldn't because if it did we would think oh this is easy, I'll do something else (laughs) it won't work all the time but it will work sometimes and then we'll know the difference how we feel it's no longer necessary to think it's working because that other person is very nice. We can see that it's working because we made it work and then we know how important that is. This is one step on the purification of beings. One essential step. There are many more. We'll talk about them. We have a number of days where we can use the time to go into detail. And I think that is helpful. At this moment, I'd like to stop and tell you a few practical things. Very practical There are two things I should have said about the questions, which I didn't. If you want to write the question in German, that's perfectly all right. It's more problem for me to translate it into English. Uh, I've got both languages in front of my brain there. Um, And the other thing is, if you like to sign the question with your name, that's fine. I won't read out the name. And if you don't want to sign it, that's just as well. It doesn't matter. I won't read it out. I'll just read out the question. So um, either way is fine. And German is fine too. I had one that was half and half. That's fine too. (laughs) 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 And uh, I have a request here. Which is again on the practical level, uh, please not to come into the meditation hall to pick up your things when people are doing individual meditation. And it says that's it's disturbing and makes bad karma. So, if, uh, let's say that we have a lot of loving kindness for each other and we won't disturb each other. So. There's a question here which often comes up and there isn't um, really much to say about it. I'll read it out. People often ask me whether Buddhism is hostile to women. I never know how to answer. Please explain this to us. Um, Well, one of the best things maybe to say is that if the Buddha would be, or his teaching would be hostile to anything, it wouldn't be a very spiritual teaching would it so the hostility would most certainly not come from the Buddha nor from his teaching it would come from misinterpretation and from personal prejudice so it's not the the teaching wouldn't be meaningful if it was hostile to anything For a person who has come to Buddhism late in life, what would, in your opinion, be the essential practice? This goes on to say, this question may not be appropriate to this group, who are all relatively young. So, you are all very young, it seems. My greatest wish would be to study under a great good teacher, but my responsibilities and circumstance do not permit this, and I'm quite on my own. Um, to come late in life to the teaching and have no one to relate to is difficult. It doesn't necessarily have to be um, a great teacher, but one should possibly find in one's hometown other people who are also interested, which is very helpful. And... uh, All right. So, um, and usually one can if uh, a birds of a feather flock together one can usually find people who are interested it's not easy to find a great teacher and then who knows who is a great teacher we say to that only a Buddha knows a Buddha Because an enlightened one knows an enlightened one because he knows what it's like. We know what it's like to be angry. We've been angry, so we know when somebody comes in is angry. But how do we know what it's like to be enlightened? So how do we know what it's a great teacher? But uh, um, like-minded people are very, very helpful. And uh, the other thing... uh, when it's late in life then we are going to do um, another contemplation and that is about the nature of decay, disease and death and uh, I'll talk about that too, about death and uh, those three are actually, the three messengers are given that name that when the Buddha before he was a Buddha Saw them, he uh, had the determination to find a way out of that particular human dukkha. So they were the messengers that spurred him on. So decay, disease, and death are very important contemplations for anyone and everyone. They're called the daily recollections for everyone. We will do them together. I will explain them more because even to be young is no guarantee to stay alive. If one goes to a cemetery, and it's very interesting to go to a cemetery, and look at the tombstones, one can find the dates of death from one hour to over a hundred years, any age at all. In Buddhism, death is a karmic, or long life or short life, a karmic resultant. But we will talk about that particular topic at another time in detail. So this is one very um, helpful practice, especially since when one is old, one can assume to be dead sooner than if one is very young. And uh, so that's important in one's hometown is also very helpful is it true the fewer karmic resultants the closer to Nibbana? I think the answer is just plain no I can't quite see the connection is it more helpful to aim to decrease karmic resultants or to aim for non-self oh I see the connection now Um, if it is helpful to aim to decrease karmic resultants what are the best ways of doing it? Um, I would forget that totally to decrease karmic resultants there's no such thing Uh, it's a misconception um to aim for non-self, uh, yes, if one can call it that, I wouldn't quite call it that, like like that, but I see what it's meant. And, yes. And if there is the actuality, the perception, and the reality of nobody sitting within, no karma. But, karmic resultants can still happen if the karma that was made was heavy. As an example, Mahamogalana, the left-hand disciple of the Buddha, Sariputta, right-hand, Mahamogalana, left-hand, the two greatest disciples, um, both enlightened. Mahamogalana was killed by Robbers, bandits and it says in the scriptures that his bones were pulverized and the other monks went to the Buddha and said how is it possible that such a pure and um, enlightened being as Mahamogalana had such a death and the Buddha said in his last life he instigated <coughs> the murder of his parents he didn't do it himself but he instigated it and that such heavy karma that even enlightenment will not um, negate that enlightenment has the effect that there are no new karma resultants because there's nobody there that's making karma which is quite logical and easy to understand but the old karma in this case still worked so I wouldn't give this any thought at all. We don't have any idea what we did last time or the time before or the time before that and it's totally immaterial. Since you don't remember what we did last time, we also have no idea what we're going to do next time. So we'll practice now. <laughs> and the only thing that's of any uh, interest really is if there's an understanding of what non-self means and I haven't mentioned it in this course yet of course, we will get down to it at one stage but at the moment there might be quite a few people who are at sea when we talk about non-self that, yes but aiming for that you can't aim for something that isn't there, can you? you can only aim to get rid of that which is there. So the whole question needs to be worded the other way around. Should I aim for letting go of um, egocentricity, of self-support, of uh, my ego-based wishes? Yes, absolutely. Quite so. But aiming for something that doesn't exist, can't be done. And uh, I wouldn't even bring that into uh, the connection of karma results. Same Handwriting? Oh, yes, that belongs together. It goes on. That's that same handwriting. If one is generally trying to recollect non-self when practicing mindfulness, is it helpful to think in terms of the phenomenon of which one is being mindful, having the consciousness of itself, rather than oneself having the consciousness. (laughs) (laughs) It's not exactly mindfulness, is it, what's being described here? Mindfulness has four foundations, and we will certainly talk about them. And none of them has to do with recollecting non-self. Mindfulness means to be in the moment, here and now, at this particular moment. And to know what one is either doing, feeling, the mood, or thinking. And to look at uh, another phenomenon, which most likely is supposed to be a person, I guess. No. Mindfulness is for oneself. So I think maybe instead of going any further on this question, I will um, leave it go until we are talking about mindfulness itself the four foundations of mindfulness are quite explicitly given by the Buddha and they are body, feeling, the moods we are in and the content of thought. So if our content of thought should be non-self, one would assume that that person is enlightened no other person can have non-self as a content one can think I am thinking of non-self but that's not non-self that's just a thought process then and it doesn't really have the expected effect so we'll talk about mindfulness um, at another stage. <coughs> oh, that that belong together too. It's again about phenomenon. Probably. If one labels, perceives a phenomenon as beautiful, has one gone too far and become caught in craving? Or can we perceive phenomenon as beautiful in the moment without wanting to extend or Repeat them. Could the beautiful be seen as pleasant feeling? No, most certainly not. The mind consists of four parts and when we have a sense contact, the next thing is feeling and feeling Well, while we might call beautiful feeling is a way of expressing oneself It isn't what is happening What's happening is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So feeling is one of those three. And if it's pleasant, the label most likely can be beautiful, if a pleasant feeling has arisen. And if the label is beautiful, it would most likely happen that the reaction is, I want to have it, I want to keep it, I want to be near it. The reaction can be otherwise, but that is the most usual one. So, as we go along, getting to know ourselves better, we will have a better um, insight into what's happening. And I actually wanted to talk about, also, about these four steps in the mind, which are sort of um, broached here, not quite in that order, but I'll put them in order, and want to mention them with respect to the sitting. The sitting posture, especially if one does it for quite a while every day, very easily, if one hasn't practiced it, becomes uncomfortable. I have no doubt about it some people are lucky and their limbs are more flexible and uh, they don't have the discomfort others get the discomfort very soon and very easily now what to do with that and this is really a part also of this question here the first thing that we need to do with the uncomfortable sitting posture is not to react impulsively but to get back to the initial happening which is touch-contact the initial happening in the sitting posture is touch-contact whatever limb is hurting it's been touching the next thing that happens is feeling in this case unpleasant the next thing that happens is that we label it painful, pain awful, whatever whatever labels we have on hand and the next thing that happens is a reaction the reaction is I can't meditate this is terrible I'm going home unless home is so far away that it doesn't really pay to do that but uh, or I'm not coming back in here it's much too uncomfortable or must be very unhealthy to sit like that (laughs) and uh, I should have brought that chair I always use at home whatever whatever reaction there is now this is the way it works and we should be totally aware of this sequence because this is the sequence we use all day long and nobody is accepted everybody uses it sense contact, feeling, label, reaction now here we had beautiful Okay, maybe it was a rose bush. Just let's assume it was a rose bush. rose bush gives a pleasant feeling. Mind says instead of rose bush says, "Beautiful." The next reaction is, "Maybe I should pick a few and put them in my room. would look much better there." Or, I'll plant one like that." <laughs> or, I'm going to find out the name of this particular rose. Very nice rose. I'll have one bush like that or a whole lot of thoughts about this particular thing that created a pleasant feeling that has been labeled as beautiful and that we don't want to totally let go we enjoy it there's no reason why we shouldn't enjoy a rose bush there's no reason why we shouldn't Be aware of the fact that there is unpleasant feeling in the sitting position but what we should do is we should know our reactions they're automatic impulses and they are pre-programmed and once we get to know that program that's running in our mind all the time then at the opportune time, we can change the program. But if we don't know there's a program, how are we going to ever change it? So if we have the sitting position, which is uh, actually more important at the moment than the rosebush, isn't it? And it's happening that we have this unpleasant sensation. Not move impulsively. Get back to that whole sequence. Become aware how it works. Touch, contact, unpleasant feeling, label, reaction. And then drop the reaction and get back to the breath. And anybody can do that for one minute, two minutes, maybe three minutes, maybe twice, maybe three times. And then the mind will probably say, this is all very interesting, but I can't sit like that. Move carefully and slowly and change your position. Change it to something that will be appropriate and acceptable for either the rest of the time or whatever it is, the next ten minutes or whatever you think you can handle. But it's not appropriate to grit one's teeth, to be in misery, to recognize meditation as misery-producing, and to even think, I'm going to show them, I can sit through this. As nobody needs to be shown anything. This is not... um, at all anything where we have to prove ourselves this is something where we have to recognize ourselves not prove ourselves so the four sequences, the four steps in Pali the mental khandas the khandas, in English they're called the aggregates the mental aggregates it's not a very meaningful word is it it's in German it's also not any more meaningful than that so the four constituents of the mind maybe that's more meaningful know them get to know them and see how they operate always either on the side of I want to get rid of or on the side of I want to get it now sometimes the feeling may be neutral and then it's not getting rid of and it's not wanting to have it's more a matter of not being aware because there are the same four constituents of the mind working also they're always there now in order to make a change which is possible We need to stop at feeling without labeling. But that's not easy. It takes time. It's usually done or it's possible to do for people when they are under great stress. They can do it. Because the stress is so great they can't handle it any further. Which is a good thing about stress. But in ordinary, day-to-day living, nobody does it unless they're determined to get rid of our clinging and craving. And to be determined to get rid of our clinging and craving takes a fair amount of insight into Dukkha. Dukkha, one of the three characteristics of all that exists, the unsatisfactoriness that is ever present. If we have a fair bit of insight into that, then the determination arises to no longer respond in that pre-programmed fashion, but to learn to let go. It's a long time process. It doesn't go overnight. It's a process of learning and it's a process of recognition so the first thing we can do is recognize how it works in the sitting in the uncomfortable uh, situation when there is unpleasant feeling it's very easy very easy to recognize and that is all that can be required of us to do at this point <coughs> Neither is it correct to react impulsively nor is it correct to grit one's teeth and suffer. Both are extremes. The Buddhist path is the middle way. Extremes are not the way to practice. So when we recognize these constituents of the mind we've taken a great step into insight and as I explained before we're doing both we're doing calm and insight or at least we're trying both I should say calm and insight and so the insight into the way our mind works is extremely relieving Because when we see that, we can know immediately everybody's mind works like that. We're not singled out for more Dukkha than others or we don't have a favorite position anywhere. The human mind works like that. It has those four parts. Now, in the Buddhist discourses, these four parts are mentioned many times. In the Abhidhamma, which is the philosophical uh, explanation of uh, his discourses, there are actually given 89 constituents of the mind. But we can't hope to remember 89, can we? But we can remember four. It's not difficult. Sense, contact, feeling, perception, which is labeling, reaction, which is either wanting to keep or wanting to get rid of. And we can notice another thing when it's unpleasant, that the mind becomes quite negative. It doesn't like what's going on even the things which have nothing to do with the sitting position. It just becomes negative. And it knows quite well that it's due to the fact that the body has no comfort and yet it can't do anything other than respond. And this is also interesting to know. Now, it doesn't mean that we can change that immediately. What we are really trying to do is the recognition of it. The Buddha worded it like this. He said that an unenlightened person has two arrows that he gets um, uh, shot with or that he gets hurt by. And an enlightened person has only one, one arrow that he gets hurt with now the two arrows that are leveled at us are body and mind reacting the enlightened one also has unpleasantness sickness of the body but mind not reacting so even the body is sick even the body has pains the mind is at ease So this is sort of like the ideal. So we have to be content with a situation which is less than ideal. We respond with the mind to the unpleasantness of the body. That's the way it is. But we should make quite sure that we recognize that. That we don't think that this is the ultimate in being. This is just being human, that's all. And being human contains problems. No question about that. So this recognition of the mind responding to unpleasant feeling is another very helpful way of getting to know oneself and those four constituents of the mind which always work in the same sequence and which are with us all the time and operating all the time. And with that we also can recognize that our senses don't have the feelings nor the labels No the reactions it's all in the mind our ears can just hear sound the ears don't know that these are church bells all they know is it's sound the mind translates that into church bells and one person will be able to have pleasant feeling and will label that and say very nice and react to it by enjoying it another person will have unpleasant feeling and will label it much too loud and will react to it by wishing it were over so even hearing the same thing or seeing the same thing will not produce the same effects. And the eyes can only see color and shape. They can't see rose, they can't see woman or man. The mind says that. One of the ways we can prove that to ourselves is. If we have this in hand, we all know it's a clock, no question about it. But if we give it to a small child, we might start nibbling on it. Lord, it looks like a chocolate biscuit. When we see it as a clock, our feeling is fairly neutral the child sees it as a chocolate biscuit, it might actually want it, to eat it, finds out it's not edible, and then it gets irate, and throws it away. And then we don't have any clock anymore. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. So, our perception is based on memory. Our perception is based on our background, on our memory and very much so also on those things which we have touched upon in our lives which have become part of our lives to know our minds to recognize them and see how they operate is an enormously helpful way even though we may not be able to change it yet we may not be able to stop the reaction we may not be able to even stop at the labelling it doesn't matter knowing it is that inside part. now with the sitting the Buddha did say that in order to meditate properly one has to be comfortable in mind and body So obviously in the beginning of each course I can assure you one is not comfortable very few people are if you find that you can't possibly meditate at all because the mind is reacting to the discomfort all the time take a chair Nobody has to prove anything. If you find that you can do it half and half, do it half and half. Half on the chair, half on the floor. It doesn't matter. The uh, important thing is to recognize the mind and its constituents. And the other important thing is not to become negative. We already have enough negativities within ourselves We don't need to increase them through discomfort in the meditation That would be totally counterproductive What we're trying to do is use meditation for two purposes one is getting to know ourselves at a level and from a viewpoint which is not available to us in daily life that's inside and the other thing would be to find through meditation that there's purity and peace and joy within us which cannot be found in the world both those things are the aim and the reason for meditation. And to become negative about discomfort doesn't help us at all. So to learn about the parts of the mind which are working and how they work is very, very important. There is a constant activity in the mind all day long Responding to our sense-contacts. There's no way we can see anything unless the mind says what we see. There's no way we can even hear anything unless the mind says what we hear. So the mind is constantly engaged. And to get to know the mind a little better, from a little more profound standpoint a little deeper perspective will help us in all our aspects because eventually it's possible to smile about the antics of the mind in or out of meditation and see it for what it is just human mind that's all We've all got it. We can all transcend it.